0: The scripture reading today is from John 21, 1 to 19. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul, haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had taken it off and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about 100 yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish. 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. But none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. The word of God for the people of God.
1: I would like to introduce our guest speaker for this morning, Reverend Jack Cabanas. May he be welcome to share the word with us. Thank you, Jane and Karen, for your warm welcome this morning. And on the Zoom feed, I thought I saw a hand puppet as well. And that was just delightful (laughs) to have the the passing of the piece also exchanged with a puppet. Thank you. I once led a service for the blessing of the animals, and there was a parrot named Clark. And I said, God bless you, Clark. And the parrot replied, God bless you, Clark. Please join me in a spirit of prayer. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Imagine with me that you are standing on the beach right before dawn. You can't even see the horizon yet everything is a gray murkiness as the gray sea and and gray sky just melt into each other and it's quiet if there is any sound at all it's probably from some seagulls looking for breakfast in that grayness in that quiet you can become prayerful reflective I wonder if it was like that for peter and the six others on the boat they had been fishing all night long and they caught nothing with no nets to haul in no fish to clean perhaps they too found that they had time for prayer and they became reflective and the thoughts and the feelings just flooded through their minds as they themselves looked out into the grayness where the lake shore would be. We aren't told what was going through Peter's mind, but we can guess. As Peter was staring into the gray murkiness, he was wondering, how could he begin his life again after the worst thing he had ever done? He tried to save himself by lying about his relationship with Jesus and disowning him. Jesus, his Lord and friend and hero, Peter rejected him. He threw him under the bus what a traitor if the story had ended there Peter would always have been remembered as the one who denied Jesus now can you imagine always being judged by the most selfish or cruel or hypocritical thing that you've ever done or can you imagine always being judged by others for the worst thing that you've ever done. This is often what happens to those who are serving prison sentences. Assuming that the worst thing that they have ever done is also the thing that landed them in prison, a quick Google search will reveal exactly what that was. Can you even imagine what it would be like if people could learn the worst thing that you've ever done through a quick Google search? Can you imagine what it would be like to be constantly judged by that? Most of us haven't been to prison, but at some time or another, we probably have suffered some kind of public humiliation. And likewise, how would you like to be constantly associated with that humiliation? Nowadays, particularly middle schoolers and high schoolers, are in danger of having their humiliating moments go viral on the Internet. And maybe the things we most regret are not known to others, But they are known to us and we find ourselves imprisoned in invisible prisons of our own making the worst thing peter ever did his most humiliating moment was when he denied that he was a disciple of jesus christ in the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke peter denies knowing jesus but here in the gospel of john peter denies that he is a disciple of jesus It may seem like a subtle distinction but it isn't because you see here in the gospel of john peter not only denies jesus but he also denies the most important thing about himself he denies his very identity as a disciple if peter is not a disciple then who is he before peter was a disciple he was a fisherman and maybe that's why he suddenly announced to the six others who are with him I'm going fishing. In the words of church consultant, Gil Rendell, when we don't know what to do, we do what we know. That's true of us as individuals. It's true of churches. Many of our churches talk about how the world has changed, how the post pandemic landscape is very different from the pre pandemic one. But oftentimes when we try to cast a vision for the future, we find that what we would really rather do is wind the clock back to 2019 and pick up where we left off. Because it's what we know. I think that Peter and the others went fishing because it was what they knew. The disciples fished all night long and caught nothing. And that's when the stranger appeared. And that's often when the stranger appears. You've been up all night long, staring at the ceiling. And at various times during the night, you try praying, but it seems as though your prayers never get any further than the ceiling you keep staring at. And then, a voice, an epiphany, a vision comes to you. And with hindsight, you believe that it must have been the Lord. The stranger on the lakeshore told the disciples to cast their nets on the right side of the boat. And when they did so, they caught so many fish they could scarcely haul it in. When the disciples realize that the stranger is Jesus, Peter immediately jumps into the water and swims toward the lakeshore. And as the rest of the disciples haul the huge net full of fish onto the shore, Jesus is already cooking some other fish over a charcoal fire. And then, apparently, the disciples painstakingly counted all the fish and discovered that they had exactly 153. Now, why did the disciples count all those fish? Here's one possible explanation. In David James Duncan's novel, The River Why*, the protagonist, Gus Arviston, says, like gamblers, baseball fans, and television networks, fishermen are enamored with statistics. The adoration of statistics is a trait so deeply embedded in their nature that even those rarefied anglers, the disciples of Jesus, couldn't resist backing their yarns with arithmetic. Now, why were there 153 fish? What was the significance of that? Now, bear with me just a moment. Saint Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin, noted that first-century zoologists had identified 153 different species of fish. So here the number might indicate full inclusion as Jesus reaches out to all peoples and all communities. St. Augustine noted that 153 was the sum of all the numbers between one and 17, and 17 itself was a sum of seven plus 10, which are two numbers that symbolize completeness. I could give six other examples, but I won't.
0: At any rate,
1: we now know how church leaders used to spend their free time before TikTok. And maybe, maybe the disciples were counting fish because they didn't quite understand the resurrection yet. In the Gospel of John, this is actually the third resurrection appearance of Jesus. And the disciples are there on the, the lake shore. They count fish. They look at the numbers. They study trends. They count whatever it is they think is important to count, such as comparing pre pandemic worship attendance numbers with post pandemic worship attendance numbers. And all the while, the miracle is right in front of them cooking fish on a fire. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he's right there with them on the beach. Why are they counting fish? Why aren't they staring at Jesus in wonder and awe? Today is Juneteenth, a celebration that recalls how on June 19th, 1865, federal troops arriving in Galveston, Texas, told those who had been enslaved that they were no longer enslaved, they were free. Juneteenth is a celebration of freedom. The late African-American theologian, Howard Thurman, linked resurrection and freedom like this. In a book of sermons titled The Growing Edge, Thurman said, no event in your life can imprison you. This is what resurrection is about. I shall not allow the events of my life to make me their prisoner. I shall continually believe that God is not through with my life or with me. Whatever it is, that you most regret whatever it was that was your most humiliating moment whatever trauma you've endured whatever it is about the future that frightens you the most none of it none of it has the ultimate power to imprison you god is not through with you or your life yet Now, Peter didn't understand this quite yet, but he's about to discover it, and once he discovers it, he will have a whole new life. As Peter and the other disciples ate the fish that Jesus had cooked over a charcoal fire, I wonder if Peter remembered the last time he had stood over a charcoal fire, as he was asked three different times, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? and three different times, sometimes with curses, Peter said no. But now, Jesus asks Peter three different times, do you love me? And three times Peter affirms, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. It's a moment of sheer grace. Jesus doesn't make Peter beg, for forgiveness. Jesus doesn't try to shame or humiliate Peter so that Peter can maybe get a taste of his own medicine. Jesus simply gives Peter a chance to reaffirm his own love for Jesus. And then Jesus gives Peter new work to do. And this too is the power of the resurrection. Not only does the resurrection mean that no life circumstance has the power to imprison us It also means that we are empowered to do the work that jesus gives us to do So also three times jesus says to peter feed my sheep And the feeding is a mutual feeding we are always feeding each other It is not about the halves feeling good about themselves because they are having helping the have-nots and isn't that a commendable thing to do? The haves are not in a superior position to the have-nots because at different times we are doing the feeding and at different times we are the ones being fed. Thomas Groom is a professor of theology and religious education at Boston College. In one of his books, he tells a wonderful story about his growing up in Ireland. It's a story that beautifully illustrates how those who are doing the feeding are themselves always simultaneously being fed. In the village where Thomas grew up, there was a man named John, who never had much money. And he had to work odd jobs around the village to earn the very little money that he did have. Now, every day at lunchtime, the same scene played itself out right in front of the groom's house. John would walk by the groom's household, and Thomas's mother would walk out the door and greet John and say, John, wouldn't you know it? I cooked too much meat and potatoes again, and you'd be doing us a grand favor if you came in and helped us eat them up. And then John would say, well, you know, I actually already ate lunch, I'm not that hungry, but I do hate to see good meat and potatoes go to waste. And so John would come on in. And even as John was inhaling his food, he regaled the grooms with stories from the village, whose cows had calved, whose chickens had flown the coop, to Mrs. Groom's question, do you have any news, John? John never once said no. One day, after John had finally left the groom's house, Thomas turned to his mother and said, How come you don't just say, well, hello, John, have you come looking for your lunch again? And Thomas's mother replied, oh no, I could never do that. It would hurt John's feelings. And besides that, the poor are God's gift to us. We owe them. To me, the great insight from Thomas's mother is that each one of us is God's gift to each other. So truly, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, whether you feel like you're progressing or whether you feel like you're stuck, no matter what haunts you from your past, no matter what uncertainty about the future frightens you most, Jesus is waiting for you on the lakeshore calling you ready to feed you with fresh fish and warm bread and after breakfast jesus will give you new work to do and one way or another you will feed jesus's sheep even as you in turn are continually being fed all glory and praise be to our god amen